everybody. Welcome to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. My name is Michelle Bruckner, and this is a podcast where we talk about show business, old friends, and new adventures. I'm here with my wonderful friend, Anthony Labati. Hey, Anthony. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> How are I'm you? I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Anthony hails from New Jersey. He currently lives in Rochester, where he is a part of the George Eastman Museum. Tell us your position again. It just flew out of my brain. I am the preservation manager in the moving image department at the George Eastman Museum. We are the part of the, the department that restores old movies. So Which, <laughs> listeners, this is a job made in heaven for Anthony. I first met him in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, under the legendary Dominic Garvey, was the artistic director. And Anthony, even at age, how old were you when I met you? 20? 26. Oh, you were 26. Okay. So he was 26 when I met him. And it was like he had stepped out of a different time. The way he dressed, the music he listened to, the films he watched. And so this current job that he has, the restoration, he is a movie buff like you would not believe. You get to live with people when you're on performing jobs. And that is a good thing because you learn how to live with other people, first of all, but then each person comes with their own background and their own history and their own tastes and their likes. And Anthony would watch these movies from the 20s and 30s, these black and white films, and he knew all the stars. He told us all about Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. And it was such a summer, not only just being with Dominic, because you and I know we're going to talk about him just a minute. Just the home life that I got to have with you. I mean, I'm super lucky. So how did you first get into your love of these films? Well, I, I grew up with them because they were always on television. And I luckily come from a family that were moviegoers. I mean, my uh, dad was born in the 20s. My mom was born in the 30s. And my dad was the youngest of a lot of children of six. And they all went to the movies every week back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, because that's what you did. So I came from a bunch of movie lovers. And when old movies would come on television, sometimes they'd say, oh, you'll like this. You watch this. And, for, and whatever else with that, I just... Um, was always drawn to that time period, as, as you know, because we've known each other, not for years, but at this point, decades. So you know And I, I love that. Uh, yeah. So uh, I've always had this love of old movies. And at, when we first met, uh, I also had this love for theater and for show business. And you had a guest on a few weeks ago that uh, your friend, she was from Berlin. And she had said something in that that really hit true for me when she said, if there is anything else in the world that you want to do, you, you should just do it. And that was that was my problem with show business, because I had this love of movies and I always thought, well, I'd love to actually work in the field of restoring films someday. And you cannot be conflicted with show business and something else that pulls you. So I chose the do it, the, you know, do whatever else. Uh, and that's okay. That's okay because you did perform 
And how did this restoration job even come about? This was probably about, yeah, this was seven years after we met. It was the late 90s now. And I was still performing. Uh, I, was, I had just done a couple of children's theater tours, which is grueling. And I was also freelancing with uh, a couple of agents uh, for uh, film and uh, commercial work. And it's just like, it's like, I really wanted, I, at that point, I was getting very tired uh, of the grind of show business. And it's like, I just would love to try to get to do film restoration, even if it's for a little bit. And I was in a bookstore and there was a, a magazine about film. I think it was Film Comment Magazine. In the back, in the classified ads, they had an advertisement for the School of Film Preservation at the George Eastman House at that time. It's uh, now called the museum uh, for the school. And it's like, you know what? I think that's what I'm, I'm gonna see if I can get into that school. And that could be my foot in the door for this profession. So I quit show business. I took a job in an executive dining room in New York City for Sony for about a year and a half. And then I applied for the school for the 1998-99 class. And I got in. When I graduated from that program, I was in the field, basically. And I've been in that field now for 22 years. And you love it. I do love it. I mean, it is, uh, it, it, you know, it's a, I've been lucky. I have that. It's like, I've done the two things I really basically wanted to do in my life. I wanted to be uh, in show business. I was for about 15 years and I can look back with no regrets on leaving it. You know, it's like, and then I got into film preservation, the other thing I wanted to do. So I've never had a time in my life where I didn't do what I wanted to do. And I don't know how many people can say that. And yeah. Not look back with any regret. I love the fact that you found an ad and you applied because there's a lot of people that would see the ad and not do anything. So for those of you who are listening, there's desire, but desire has to get with action. So you can want something, but it's the act of trying for it. And whenever we all go to auditions and we don't get the job, that is not the the sad part. The sad part is if you just stayed home that day. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yes. You that's where I think the regret comes in. If you have the desire, but then for whatever reason you don't try to fulfill it. Then yeah. you will look back and you will just you could kick yourself, I think, in the future if you don't follow through. So I'm curious because film, when a movie is made now, do they still use film or is it all digital? And some filmmakers choose the film, right? Is this how it goes now? Yeah, I think some filmmakers might still try to use film, but I think most shoot digitally, but they might record back out to film because film is going to last longer as okay. a storage medium than uh, a digital file will. You will always have to migrate your files, but if you could put it on film and get it into a vault, and a nice temperature-controlled vault, that piece of film can theoretically last 500 years. Wow. When you have to restore something, what does that mean? It, it's had some damage to it due to exposure or heat or something? Heat, moisture, cold. Until 1951 in the United States, all like commercial filmmaking was on what was called nitrate film. And nitrate is going to decompose no matter how well you store it. It's just the chemical makeup, the film starts to decompose. And it's also very combustible. It can catch fire very easily. And that's why they went to safety film starting in the early 50s. 
And when they first went to safety film, they thought this was it. We found something that will last. But then they found out that the triacetate film also decomposes. It starts to smell like vinegar and the base starts to shrink and the emulsion cracks off of it. So you get these old films and you have to then put them onto a new strip of film. You have to transfer it to brand new film. And now we use polyester-based films. So hopefully it won't be in my time, but these will be good for many generations to come. And there are, uh, I mean, the statistics with the nitrate film that 50% of all films made during the nitrate era are gone. And, and then 80% of silent films are all gone. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, speaking of film, do you have a favorite? I do. Uh, there are a lot of films I like, but uh, I do like The Big Parade. It's a 1925 World War One film, although uh, 1925 was just known as the World War. It starred John Gilbert and Renee Adderay. It was made by MGM and directed by King Vidor. The first time I saw it was at Radio City Music Hall in 1987, and there was a 70-piece orchestra to play along with it. Oh, my and goodness. That was an indelible impression on me. <laughs> the kicker to that is when they showed it back then, all the copies were just black and white. And I end up working in the place that had the original camera nick to this film, which was thought to be lost, but it was always at the George Eastman Museum. It was always in our vaults from like the 50s. MGM sent it to the museum and we've been holding it. And they uh, went back and restored the film at my, during my time there. And they used to color tint films in the silent era. So if there was a scene that took place in the daytime, it might be tinted yellow. At nighttime, it was blue. Or sometimes they would use colors to evoke emotion, like red for anger. So the color tints have been restored to the film. And oh, how cool. Really wonderful now. And it's available on Blu-ray and DVD. Oh, wow. And uh, seeing it, you can. Fantastic. We could talk about film all day today. And I just remember coming home from work or on days off, you would just be watching the most interesting things, but you would also explain you were the one who told me about Clark Gable and Carol Lombard's great romance and then how she tragically died in the plane crash. You just knew so many details about these people, almost like you were from another time. So I'm going to get real woo-woo to the listeners and everything. But Anthony, there is definitely something about you that speaks of a past era. So what do you think? Do you think that you actually are from a past time or you just think you were raised in an environment that your taste just became like... You were an only child, right? Correct. Yes. And there were a lot of adults around you. So do you think that that is why you love Art Deco and all these things that are just not contemporary? It, it could very well be. And it's like, uh, you know, I was like, like you said, I'm only child. I only have three first cousins and they were born in the 1940s. So there was nobody my age in my family. My dad was the youngest of six. So I had all these people that grew up through the 19 teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. Not that I think that they purposely or anybody said you have, you know, try to influence me in my tastes. I was just always drawn to it. The music, the styles, the cars and all that. It just, it was always in me for whatever reason. I don't call it uh, being reincarnated too soon. Who knows? I don't know. It just, it was always a part of me and I can never really explain it well. It's what I was like. 
which is why actually why the carousel was such a perfect fit for the shows that they used to do when we were there, you know, 30 yeah. years ago and for the audiences that would come there. It was just, that was perfect for, for my tastes. Yeah. You were perfect for that environment. And just even you walking around with the way you would do your hair, what's that stuff you used to put in your hair? Lanolin still put it in my hair. <laughs> <laughs> Been using that in my hair since 1976. But listeners, he looked like a like a 30s movie star walking around Booth Bay Harbor with his vests and his pants <laughs> and his dress shoes. You know, everybody else was in shorts and sneakers and Anthony had a vest on and a pair of shiny shoes. I want to talk a little bit about your collection of deco. So listeners, he used to get up at the crack of dawn and go to all of these garage sales and flea markets, a man ahead of his time because people were give, practically giving away deco stuff, right? Back then, yeah. Before, the days before eBay, this was, and Maine. Maine was so good for antiques back then. It was such a buyer's heaven. But coming from the New York area where things were more expensive and you know cheaper than they are now, but up in Maine, was it was a buyer's paradise. You'd go to these book barns or these antique malls and... Uh, what's something like I bought a, a fountain pen up in uh, Brunswick, uh, Antique Mall in Brunswick, Maine, for I think it was like $20 in New York at that time. That would have been 250 Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, I find I'm when I'm lucky, I find some really good vintage clothing for for very little compared to the New York market. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. What describe some of the pieces that you have, some of the uh, furniture that you possess now? Well, um, I like a lot of like the 30s furniture that have the veneered woods that sort of match into patterns in it, like a chevron pattern. They'll do the veneers that way. I like a lot of chrome tube furniture. I think of uh, a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film. So that sort of furniture is basically, that's my taste. Yeah, I'm very gravitate, gravitate towards 30s furniture, like almost everything else in my life. I gravitate a time that I gravitate towards. Uh, I'm looking at the rack of ties behind you because <laughs> listeners, we're on a Zoom call right now. And even your ties, are they antique ties? Those are all from the 30s. Oh, I oh. could tell. What's that wonderful one right behind you with the circles? Oh, that this, one is giving me life. I, I, that is my favorite one. That is, and oh. I paid the most for that tie. That's a $45 tie. It's probably from about 1932. And it's I got beautiful. that at a vintage clothing store in Richmond, Virginia, when I was there for a film conference back in 2013. Oh. <laughs> and when you find an item like that, doesn't it just fill you with such joy that you're going to bring it home and you're going to wear it and you're going to like cherish it and love it? You find a pot of gold. I love oh, those moments. Well, uh, a pot of gold was found last February at a Goodwill. Tell us, tell us, uh, tell us. A ceramic punch bowl that it was one of those, this cannot be. Uh, it was had a, f a price tag of $4.49. It's called the Jazz Bowl. It was designed by Victor Schreckengast, if anybody wants to look this up. And there were three styles. This was the third and final style made in 1931. And there are only about 50 of all known to exist of all three styles. So um, it had to get appraised to get in, to be insured. It's the only item I have that is insured. And Did it, you play it cool in the Goodwill? Were you like, oh my goodness, 
Let me just uh, buy this before, like, let me get it out of this Goodwill before anybody knows what we're doing. Yes, exactly. I mean, and that it got to this Goodwill that nobody knew what it was and they sold it for $4.49 is amazing because it was appraised at $50,000. <laughs> Holy. See, you've got the eyes, but you not just the eyes, you know the history. You know the history. I was in a vintage store in Maine last winter when I was choreographing Guys and Dolls. I popped in. I make the rounds of all the vintage stores when I'm up there. And I found a brown wool coat from the 50s, three-quarter sleeves, with a department store tag from Lewiston in it, and a mink collar that someone had added. So I snatched that coat. I brought it to the register. And the woman behind the register was like, this, this is $4. And then she was like, oh, I'm sorry. It's $10. Is that okay? And I was like, <laughs> yes, it's okay. No worries. And I ran out of that store because in New York, that coat would have been three, $400 at the vintage, mm-hmm. you know, fairs and things like that. But I'm like, oh my, when you find a steal like that, like a deal, you're just $50,000, Anthony. Oh my goodness. There's, there's nothing, nothing else I will ever in my life. This will never happen again. I've had good luck before in the past, but nothing like that. Tell me what depression glass is. Depression glass is a term that's been given to a group of glassware that were, that was made from the 1920s through the 1950s. And because it was most popular during the Depression, that's where the name comes from. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it was just made at that time period. So it's usually pressed glass and it comes in different colors like pink and green, yellow. It's uh, very colorful and it was very cheap at the time and it's become very collectible. You know when you see it because it's usually... you know, pressed glass, or it could be streamlined patterns of like concentric circles. But some of it you have to be careful with because they've made modern reproductions of it. And you can, you don't want to be paying a vintage price for something that was made. And I'm not all that familiar with depression glass. So I'm like, I'm not going to go down that street. I would, you need to do your homework for it. I've, I've, don't know if I've ever come across it. I've just seen pictures of it in magazines. I like it. I I don't know if I would ever start collecting it. Here, my thing is the last two years I started to attend the Manhattan Vintage Show. And the first year I went, I I just was a look, a looky loo. I just looked <laughs> and didn't buy. The second year, however, I started to think, oh, you work hard, Michelle why don't you spend a little bit of money? Well, (laughs) one day I walked in there and I don't even want to tell you how much I spent that day. I did buy some very nice items that I wear. However, since the pandemic, I'm like, girl, no, you can, you can go to thrift stores and you can go to garage sales. And if you happen to find something due to luck, that is super cheap, but you are not going to buy things that other people have found for super cheap and marked up a hundred times over. That's the, those times are over sweet show girl. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes though you have to go to those, if there's something you really want, 
big antique shows might be the only place you're going to find it. That's true. And I do like, there are, I do like the Manhattan vintage show and I do like other like markets and things because it is very nice to meet other people that care as much as you do. And yes, these are things, but I would rather wear a coat from the fifties or sixties. The quality of fabric is amazing. The, the workmanship is amazing. I don't know. There's, I just feel like I'm honoring the people who lived before by wearing something again and really just enjoying it and and wearing it to the theater. You know what I mean? Like just yeah. giving it the second life that it deserves. That's a very good that's a very good way of putting it. Let's talk about Dominic a little bit, shall we? All right. <laughs> um, are you coming in September when we do the concert? Are you gonna perform and be, are you going to come? I would love to, if we can, if, if yeah, travel sure. is allowed. I would. It is in in the back of my head. I would love to. I'd love to do something. Yes. Just earmark the weekend, and you know, if you can get away, you guys can come up, and you know. But when did you first meet him? It was in 1989, and much like yourself, uh, the year after is when they were holding auditions in new york so i went and i forget the name of the audition hall uh rehearsal space that they were using was it nola on 54th no because that was nice nola was nice this was on 46th street sandwiched between the howard johnson's and the lungfontan theater uh and was it it the variety don't that doesn't sound familiar it had like an awning and then it was up one flight and it was the scariest place. Like I'm going to be murdered in here. I know exactly where it doesn't exist anymore, but I know what you're talking about. If any of the listeners know, I know those studios. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, it was right across the street from the Marriott Marquis. Yeah. 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 And, but of course then you go in and then you sign up and they had a couple of performers who were there the year from the year before to talk to you and uh, just kind of put you at ease. And it was one of the easiest auditions and most thorough. Like I remember uh, if it was in your first podcast saying how you got to sing two songs and yeah, two, uh, a ballad in an up-tempo and I met Dominic and Peter and Joan. The, uh, the producers, the- yep. And... Dominic was just, he was very friendly and he, I think he really wanted me to come up to the carousel. And at the time I also had just landed a chorus job in a, oh, it was a operetta company on 91st street, Loom, Light Opera of Manhattan. And I was trying to earn enough points to get my equity card there. But, and Dominic, uh, I saw, so I turned down the carousel and Dominic said, look, if anything happens with with Loom and you change your mind and you want to come up, please call me. And I would say uh, I did because Loom turned out to be a really terrible experience. <laughs> they, oh, I'm sorry it, to hear that. Uh, just it was not a um, wasn't a nice place to work. Uh, okay, a lot of egos, and so okay. I called Dominic, and he was still he had room for me. Luckily, luckily, yeah. And I went up to Maine. What the, they did at the carousel was, you know, how they would do those cabaret portions of the evening before you 
do the show. So, and it's all the music was just everything I loved. So, I mean, we did a Fred Astaire, a tribute to Fred Astaire cabaret. Um, so it was like all this music from the teens, twenties, thirties, forties, that was perfect. And Maine was beautiful. So I went back for the next four years. Wow. I didn't realize you had been there for four years. I did two. I did the first season, which, oh, and then you and I, that first season went to North Conway, New Hampshire. Yes. We were two of the four performers that did that job, which I really enjoyed that job. It was nice. Um, it was a nice, it was-, it was a nice little gig. Like, you know, I didn't realize it that the beginning, I had such a nice beginning to the career, you know, <laughs> like to, to have someone like Dominic who just gave us so much music. Like I remember he would just hand it out every week, new songs. And so I was learning, I don't know, over five to 10 pieces a week, you know, over the course of May through December. And we had, do you remember Jean, the mother of Martha? Yes. Oh, Jean was such a lovely and funny woman. May she rest in peace. But Martha and Jean made the costumes for our New Hampshire gig. They also made the costumes yes. for the summer. Yep. Yes. Yes. So, so much fun. And so it, w- it was just like a wonderful first experience. You really can sink your teeth into this music. You can enjoy your coworkers. We had that, that we had that country house. Do you remember? Yes. <laughs> you Outside all used town. to tease. Yeah, outside of town, and you would tease me. You would pretend to drop me off. I would always say uh, the car was breaking down when we were passing that scary house that was in the woods just before we got to where our cast house was. Oh, I know. I know. And you used to say, go knock on the door. (laughs) But you know what I also remember? We took a few trips to New York. Like We would have 24 hours off, and you were like, I'm going to New York. (laughs) <laughs> and I would get in the car with you and we would quickly go down and come right back. Yeah. And the drive was like seven, eight hours, but we just, we right. needed to have a dose of Manhattan and then we would come back. <laughs> yes. I don't know if I would do that. I, hey, I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have done it then. But it you know what? Cool, we like... were young and Moody's Diner. So Moody's Diner is a place what is it about an hour from Booth Bay Harbor? You think maybe 45 minutes, but it seemed like an hour because it was like when we would be going, it'd be after a show and it was nighttime. So it just makes it seem longer and dark as dark can be. But Moody's diner was founded by a member of the Navy from Maine. He got on a Navy ship and instead of cooking food, the normal like buffet style rations way, he started making food to order on his ship and he ended up saving the Navy like so much money, but the food on his ship was amazing. And after he was done with his service, he opened up that Moody's diner. And to this day, their food is just, um, it's one of those wonderful old diners that people go to. It's, it's a place you have to visit. Walderboro. It is. Uh, Okay. So, what is the funniest memory that you have from our time together? I think you know which one <laughs> it's going to be. Why, why you don't make popcorn in a frying pan? 
and I will not mention the person who's doing their name, but uh, uh, you remember it was right after a show and we were coming back to the cast house and this one, one of our castmates was trying to make popcorn in a frying pan on the stove and (laughs) she had a kernel, one kernel of corn in in the pan with oil. (laughs) And when that popped, she knew it would be hot enough to throw the other kernels in. And as we all walked by, the, there was smoke just coming out from uh, from the oil, and she's coughing and fanning it, which you know, yeah, gives some hot oil some oxygen. And you went into the dining room. You were studying music. Uh, for, yeah, I, think, I was probably for uh, North Conway. Doing my homework yeah. with my pink. I had a pink cassette recorder. It was like I don't know why it was pink, but yeah. And I was in the living room with a, a couple other people. We were going to watch Blight Spirit with Rex Harrison, and all of a sudden, our castmate let out a yell, and <laughs> she said, "Anthony, I'm scared." And I looked into where the kitchen was, and the stove was on the opposite wall from where I I couldn't see it, but I could see the wall that I was looking at had flickering orange color to it and it was a white wall it's like and i thought i bet i know what she's scared of and i went <laughs> when i walked in the the frying pan there was a column of flame shooting from the frying pan all the way up to the ceiling in a house we are renting and i just i panicked and i started to yell for another one of our castmates who was fixing his car and he saw you cuz he was outside and he looked into the <laughs> the dining room <laughs> window and you could see the whole thing reflected in the french door that went from the dining room to the kitchen so he said you had this oh like <laughs> expression on your face of seeing this and he came in and he grabbed your your denim jacket and he just started I can't believe you remember this yeah he took my denim jacket and put out the fire basically which is fine but it happened to be something i had just purchased and it actually was still wearable although it did have a big grease stain on the inside so <laughs> i know I, I remember it came it came off the, the this flaming frying pan flew off the stove and was just yeah. skittering around the floor and there was that pile of newspapers that we didn't take back to the recyclable yet so it was just like i'm seeing it going towards it. it's like that's it this is where the house is going. But I loved how you and I basically don't do anything. And and our other castmate is out working in the car, working on his car, and he had to come in and put out the fire. Well, like, what happened, I went into that mudroom and I grabbed my coat and it was just like, this is me being selfish. It was just like, I just bought this. I can't use it. And then I picked up the next thing and it was a slip. It was somebody's slip. It's like, what's this doing here? Uh, it was like, I knew that wasn't going to do it. By that time he grabbed your jacket and somebody put a bucket over it when it was on the floor. One of those big plastic buckets of the pickles came in. It was one of those things where it all happened so fast. We're laughing about it now. It could have ended totally differently. So I'm glad that it, I'm glad that no harm came to it. And you know what? That was an old house, but that was a really comfortable house. And it was furnished. And whatever bed I got in my room, to this day, I still remember how comfortable that bed was. That yeah. mattress, I don't know how old it was, but it just was like so comfortable. I used to sleep so well in that bed. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a nice house. It had a lot of land. Uh, yeah, I know. I don't know like why they rented it to us or whatever, 
but I do remember paying for housing. And, you know, that that was one of those jobs where you barely made any money. However, what you got in exchange was Dominic. And what you got in exchange was the experience of performing six nights a week. Back then, the theater was doing very well. It was packed, full houses. So I I enjoyed it had this he had a real genius talent for knowing what would work for you even if you didn't realize that it would and he, oh, yeah. he would he would stretch you to in what he gave the music that he gave you and push push your limits cuz he he knew you could do it i don't think he would he would push you in a direction you didn't want to go that you couldn't go in you might yeah. not think you could go there but he could see it yeah, he had this vision for for the for you as the artist beyond your years and beyond like your experience. And I don't you've heard that episode 4 with Larry Blank. That is what basically Dominic helped me for the next 20 years of my career because he gave me all that music and then when I would go to auditions and sing things he gave me, people behind the table would like tilt their head and they would be like, "Where'd you get that?" It would it would interest people and intrigue people. So much so that at that audition for Larry, I sang four songs that day just because he was like, "Who is this girl? Like what's her book all about?" And that is what I really miss the most about, you know, I I still audition. I try to audition more for film and TV these days, but I miss those days of, you know, having that perfect little book of, you know, (laughs) 10, 15 songs with you so that if they said, what else do you got? You could pull Mm -hmm. something out and it would just, you know, it would up the ante of it all. And I've been talking with people about auditions now so many people are requiring you to tape something and send it in. Wow. There is still something wonderful, though, about the live experience of it's like a two minute performance. You go in, you got two minutes to like impress people or just give them a window to you. And can you do it in that two minutes? And because of Dominic, we could do it in that yeah. two minutes. And also just being in front of people, the audiences were just like literally one foot away from us all the time you get comfortable with just someone like so close to you and you get just so used to just people and and an audience you know and when when they laugh when to time your laughs and when to hold and all these things you know yeah that's uh, it's the perfect training i mean just doing is just the more you do, the better the better you get and learn how to get around when things don't go quite right or you don't get the audience reaction that you expected. Or, uh, and and also with the, the carousel, the way it was back then, I don't know if it is. I mean, it, it was a huge space and it wasn't mic'd. Like you had to learn how to project to reach the back of that, that barn. I mean, it was a, wasn't a, literally a barn, but it was built to look built. like a barn. Yeah. Uh, you moved to Rochester for this job, right? For this Eastman yes. job. Mm-hmm. And how is it there? Well, it's usually gray and cold in the winter, but you you know that you're moving to the Great Lakes area. But it's it's a nice little city oh, and it has a really nice art scene. I mean, we have a, a symphony orchestra, a lot of museums, a lot of universities, very well, uh, well established, very well known universities. So there is a a very nice cultural scene. And I've been out of New York City so long that when I go back, it 
you know, it's it's such a different town from what I knew that it hurts. It really a is little, a little. Um, so I kind of gotten used to a, a more slower pace of life. But I do want to say one thing of that with theater and what what you learn from it, you take with you through the rest of your life because of the discipline that it instills. Because you have to be to do a show, you have to be disciplined. It tells you how to play nice with others because you need to get along in theater or it's just you're just not going to work if you get a reputation of being stubborn and it gives you poise because in my job now I, there are still times when i'll have to introduce film i'll have to be on a panel someplace and you have this you're able to do public speaking and you don't freak out about it because you've had this training so it you just it is always with you no matter how where else you go in life you will it, it will come to your rescue. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think it just instills these these deep rivers of confidence in you. If you can do rehearsals in a show, you can basically do anything, right? Yeah. Oh, it also teaches you about like if you if you are going for a new position and you don't get it because there is so much rejection in theater that you you just learn to take it not personally because it, it, it isn't. There could be one hundred reasons why you don't get a part. You know, who else is cast? How how did you fit in with those people? You know, it's like that you, you just build up a sort of an elephant hide or you realize that, okay, it wasn't right now. It, this wasn't for me for right now, maybe later. So um, you just, you roll with the punches, I think. And that's another thing that theater gives you. Yeah. And you know what about the rejection thing? It's like I said earlier, the fact that you're attending an audition is the most important thing. The mm -hmm. outcome is not up to you. And I've had jobs that I didn't get that I, you know, I was a little sad about, but you know what, it, what ended up happening in that time slot is where my life had to go. It's okay. Like one of the things that I'm so grateful about is like just sitting here talking to you. I feel right now, like I'm at home, even though I am at home, you know <laughs> what I mean? But yeah. But emotionally, like just sitting here with you, I feel like that young kitten, Frank Omar calls me kitten. Um, <laughs> like you, when I'm with you, I feel like I'm home. Yeah, it, it's, it's like when we're, it's like being back on that couch at the cast house again. We were watching uh, the videotape of Crimes and Misdemeanors, the Woody Allen film, which neither of us really found too funny, except though. One line of, uh, if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but there's just so, like, in that in that time period, and maybe, maybe this happens in that age of being, like, in your 20s. Maybe, maybe your brain just, just absorbs the memories better. I don't know. But I have complete years where I don't know what the heck happened, you know? <laughs> But yet I could tell you, I could still smell what it smelled like on a summer night when we'd come home and walk into the cast house or we would get up in the morning and one of our other cast members loved the garden and he would already be up since five in the morning working <laughs> on that garden. We did have a really good garden that year, I have to say. Yes. But you know what I'm saying? There are certain people in your life that you're just there. They're your people. Yeah, that is true. I feel like I feel like no time when we're together. I don't feel any time has elapsed, mm -hmm. and we could go we could go years, decades without seeing each other, and and then we just pick up right where we left off. We've been pretty good lately, though. We've been yeah. seeing each other fairly 
you know, at least once a year for about the last four or five years, I would think. I was very lucky. Gig down in Ryder. Yeah, that gig, that gig, that was, um, I had that gig for six years. I didn't do it last year, of course, because of the pandemic. But I also, even if there wasn't a pandemic, my plans, I was going to try to book some performing work. So I told them I wasn't available. I, I don't regret that because I really did have that intention to try to book some summer work. And um, it's, a be- it's a beautiful gig. It's just like a really long day. I think we start at nine and go to nine. And then there would always be like meetings after and stuff. So it was a really intense couple of weeks. But you came to the shows. I mean, we did good work. It was fun. Yeah, those, those kids were, they were spectacular. <laughs> Yeah. So I got to work with some great kids. It was um, a musical theater college prep and Ryder basically wanted kids to um, get a taste of their program. And it also would offer you if you auditioned for Ryder University and you got in, they would give you a small scholarship. So there was that incentive, too. So you basically, you know, you paid tuition to go to this camp. But then if you got into the school, you basically got, went to the camp for free and then they would offer you that scholarship, I think for all four years that you were there. So it oh, turned wow. out to be like an $8,000 scholarship when all was said and done, which was That's really right. nice. Yeah. And they also were like looking for talent, you know, it was a, it was a recruiting tool for them. And I just lucked into that job. So it was something that I really enjoyed doing. And who knows, maybe they'll use me again. But you were able, you were in that area every summer. So I was able to get together with you at least for lunch or at least for breakfast or something. Yes, That was super nice. So Anthony, is there anything you just want to say to the listeners uh, before we say goodbye for tonight? I would just say if if you have a dream and you really believe in that dream, if really, really in your heart, believe in that dream, don't let anybody stop you. And no matter how, how it changes, if you listen to how you feel and what your inner soul is telling you, you will, you will make it one way or another, or another. I've made it twice, basically, two different careers and no, no regrets. It's great advice. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I I'm so glad that you listened to it and I'm so glad you like it. Love it. I don't, I'll be listening uh, because we're recording this on a Sunday. I'm, I know it's, it's, it's in my uh, schedule for tomorrow to listen to it. Yay. So. <laughs> well, Thank you so I much hope for you'll come me. back. I, oh, well, you are welcome. If, You're part if, of my family, baby. <laughs> same here. I was like, well, if you get a good response and people don't run from this in horror. Yeah. I'd be happy to come back. No, this is great. And I just think, you know, there's more than just music to this career, like your love of antiques and my love of vintage. It's all part of it. It's all part of like the interest that we have in beautiful things and history. It's part of it. Yeah. So thank you. I love you. (laughs) Love you too, Michelle. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, Showgirl Tip of Day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Show, show.